the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Hi, Justin. How's it going, Lindsay? Well, I'm happy to be here for this episode. It's a little bittersweet to be doing a Ivan Reitman tribute episode, but I'm happy that we're able to. I, I was hoping that we could get this together earlier than later, but I really wanted to take some time and really sit down and watch a lot of his movies. Yeah. Uh, especially there's like three or four that I had never seen, so... I kind of started with those first, which was kind of strange. Did you? Okay. Um, and really digging into research on his career and how much he produced. And I guess I never really realized how much of an idea man he was. You know, even though he's not credited as writing a lot of these movies that he's directed, he had he was so involved with the idea of like how to conceptualize things in a more clear, functional way for the movies to be better to make the stories like more clean and concise. I think there's a lot of things we're going to get into. This is going to be a little bit different of an episode. I think the only other tribute, I'm glad we're not doing like tribute episodes like yeah, once right? a month, you know, yeah. that all of our favorite filmmakers are passing away. Um, we did one for Penny Marshall um, and that was a little bit different. This one's going to even be more different. Uh, it's going to be a little more free form. We're going to go through Reitman's career. Try not to spend too much time on each movie, but I would like to highlight a lot of the films in his career and what he produced. We will go in chronological order for those. So that way, if you're listening and you want to go on to a big Ivan Reitman deep dive, you know, you can start in chronological order if you want. I did not do that because I wanted to start with the later films I hadn't seen and we'll get to those. And we already did Ghostbusters for our main feature. So I would say when we get to the Ghostbusters section, like please go back, check out our Ghostbusters episode where there's a lot of information on Reitman and the behind the scenes of that movie. And Reitman movies have come up in our picks of the week multiple times. And with Reitman passing away, you know, everyone kind of comes out and has their tributes to someone who uh, affected them so deeply with a movie like Ghostbusters and growing up and was a movie that you know, probably was like your favorite movie growing up. And while that is profound to be affected by just one movie and affect you for the rest of your movie viewing life, Ghostbusters certainly affected me in that way. But there were so many other movies in his career that I didn't even realize were Ivan Reitman movies that I loved. And it wasn't until I was an adult when I realized all of these other movies that I loved were also made by him. And doing a deep dive into his career and learning about kind of where he came from and working all of a lot of the same themes and evolving ideas that are all throughout his films. It's just been a really nice experience to go through all of his films and really feel like you got to know him a little bit through watching all of these movies. So this episode is going to be more than, oh man, Reitman's so awesome and great and I just love Ghostbusters. There's a lot more to him than Ghostbusters. Yeah, a buddy of mine I was talking to, I guess, like a couple weeks ago uh, about Reitman after he passed away. Um, he was saying, oh, other than Ghostbusters, those, I mean, what has he really done that was good? You know, and I was like, well, Stripes. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I was like, Twins, pretty good. And he's like, oh, yeah, I like the movie. And then I was like, you know, Dave is fantastic. And he was like, Dave, I've, I've never seen Dave. And then I was like, oh, yeah, man, you got to check it out. And he uh, 
texted me like three days later and he was like, how have I never seen this movie? It's so charming. And like I, the ending, you know, I wasn't expecting it. And I think it is uh, easy to forget all the movies that Reitman directed because he was very collaborative. He worked with other directors and produced a lot of things. And so, you know, like Ramis was in Ghostbusters, but he, you know, is also a writer director himself and, you know, he was in Stripes. And so you, you know, it's easy to forget, you know, and then Reitman produced Animal House, but it's directed by John Landis. So it's, I, I think, you know, there's a, all these guys were working together and then they were working on their own things. And so it's easy to get, forget like, oh man, he did really did have like, you know, directed like 20 movies and some of these are really, you know, heartfelt and good films to watch and, and absolutely worth revisiting. And one of the coolest things in all of this is noticing how there are so many people that were finding their voices as filmmakers and storytellers and actors. All of these people who are very famous nowadays, they were all swimming around in the same pool. And Ivan Reitman was in the middle of it all. Yeah. If anything, when we started going through Reitman's history, it was insane how many people he's collaborated with or like it was a part of a time period when all these different actors and directors were like starting to make their names like Ivan Reitman's like the Forrest Gump of like you know <laughs> early comedic Hollywood yeah and I'm looking forward to this you know if if you're a regular listener you'll probably notice that the format for this is going to be uh, wildly different than what we normally do we're cutting the pick of the week because we want to kind of just focus on Reitman's career and there's so many stories of Murray and Reitman so we're not going to do a Murray moment because Murray was going to pop up in this and we just kind of wanted to streamline this a little bit it's going to be heavily focused on uh, the man his career and what he's accomplished and what he's left behind so relax we hope you enjoyed this episode we're going to go to a few Reitman early clips and then we'll come back we'll get into the uh, early makings of Reitman's career just because we're losing doesn't mean it's all over. Cut the crap, Morty. I mean, the Mohawks have beaten us the last 12 years. They're going to beat us again. That's just the attitude we don't need, Phil. Sure. Mohawk has beaten us 12 years in a row. Sure, they're terrific athletes. They've got the best equipment that money can buy. Hell, every team they're sending over here has their own personal masseuse. Not masseur, masseuse. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. Do you know that every Mohawk competitor has an electrocardiogram, blood and urine tests every 48 hours to see if there's any change in his physical condition? Do you know that they use the most sophisticated training methods from the Soviet Union, East and West Germany, and the newest Olympic power, Trinidad Tobago? But it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. I tell you, it just doesn't matter. 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 Even if we win, if we win, ha! Even if we win, even if we play so far over our heads that our noses bleed for a week to ten days, even if God in heaven above comes down and points his hand at our side of the field, even if every man, woman, and child held hands together and prayed for us to win, it just wouldn't matter because all the really good-looking girls 
would still go out with the guys from Mohawk because they got all the money. <laughs> it just doesn't matter if we win or we lose. It just doesn't matter. So from the first clip there, if you're even a uh, casual Reitman fan, you probably know um, one of his early movies he directed was Meatballs and started his uh, long relationship with Bill Murray. And though that is kind of like a landmark film for him, like where his career like really, really kicked into high gear, he had some pretty humble beginnings, worked his first as a producer, and then you know tried to segue into directing because that's what he really wanted to do. And I think a lot of people don't know, I certainly didn't know his early, early works as a producer and how he got into the business. And we're even going to go further back because looking at all these movies in the last like couple weeks, there's a ever running theme through all of Reitman's movies, you know, this sort of themes of friendship and loyalty and family. And there's not a lot of mean spirited elements in his movies. There's not a lot of darkness, whether or not there's conflicts in his movies, Um, All these characters have some sort of heart and they always are working together, you know, to form a bond, to solve a situation. And I think a lot of that has to do with his upbringing and his family and the bonds that his family had. And I think all of us can agree that like what happens, you know, when we're kids um, is is usually a direct reflection on how we view the world and how we operate And I think that was certainly the case with Reitman in his creative endeavors. Yeah, his desire to tell stories that have a real heart to them versus uh, stories that tear people down or like that darkness that you're talking about, Justin. Something that is all throughout his films, just a um, more of a positive aspect or a positive spin on situations, even if they can be dismal. And this is coming from a guy who at age five escaped the communist-run country of Czechoslovakia with his parents. His mom actually survived Auschwitz, um, and his father was a freedom fighter who Reitman has even said, you know, he was out there, kind of out there killing people and hiding out in the woods. His parents were hardened people, but they were also very smart and knew that by not being communists, that in the Russian-occupied country of Czechoslovakia, they weren't going to last very long. So they started a stealthy plan and quite illegal plan of converting Czech crowns into U.S. dollars, knowing that their ultimate goal was going to be to flee the country. And they do. Ivan and his parents literally make a deal with a boat captain to be hidden under the boards um, of a boat to avoid Russian soldier inspection and so they can get out of the country. And luckily for them, it worked. Um, from country to country, they went to Vienna, to France, and this is they, they had relatives, I think, in France, and eventually they immigrated to Canada. And I'm skipping over a lot of things. I mean, this is months and months journey. This isn't uh, something that should be taken lightly. But think about this. This is a little kid escaping with his parents who they had one suitcase between them, and he, Ivan was told put all the clothes that you can on your body because that's all you're going to have with you. When that's all you know and that's what you're coming from, you better believe that anything that you're going towards has got to be better than that. And so thinking about this of when you're five, I mean, you're fully conscious of your life and what's going on around you. So of course, something as dark and dismal as this, to have a positive outlook coming out of it is kind of incredible, really. You know, in some interviews, Reitman has said he didn't notice how 
often his movies were heartfelt so he was reflecting on his entire career he does bring up this story of like fleeing a country quite often in interviews when he talks about his early career now, Ivan really never used um, any of his childhood or any of those experiences in his future films, but experiences he, he did have in his adolescence, he would put towards uh, future films like going to summer camps. That was kind of a big influence on his life. And those emotions and connections and friendships that you make that kind of span your whole life. He also was into performing magic shows for his friends and was even in a band, played multiple instruments. And his band was called the Twin Tone Four for you trivia heads out there. But Ivan wasn't the best high school student, kind of a crappy student. He admits that. And he was determined that once he went to college, he was going to live the dream of these are the best years of your life, you know, make the most of it. And he really tried to. He went to McMaster University in Hamilton, Canada, which was a more conservative area of Canada just outside of Toronto. And he majored in music composition. Film wasn't really a, a possibility or something he didn't really think was. That was more of a Los Angeles or New York type of thing. You know, just thinking about that time period, uh, like you said, I mean, there weren't film schools everywhere. Yeah. Uh, there wasn't a lot of independent filmmakers out there. So yeah, it was like East Coast, West Coast, uh, but certainly not in Canada. There wasn't a lot of uh, young filmmakers going to school and learning the trade. So I don't know how many uh, film composers there were out there either, but he thought, you know, I'm going to try to take a crack at this at least. And there were only three other people in his music composition program, too. Now, Ivan's dad kind of wished he would have majored in something more practical like law or even architecture, but he eventually came around to supporting his son's more creative endeavors. And there was one thing that Ivan definitely shared with his father, and that was being very business-minded. And while he did go in the arts direction, more so than really practical, he had that entrepreneurial spirit within him just like his dad. And while there weren't film courses, like Justin said, they did have like drama societies and, and film clubs, but they weren't really funded that well. And Ivan did have other students around him that had like minds like he did, people that would become longtime friends like Doug Henning and Dan Goldberg, who would be future collaborators for over 30 years. And this is where Ivan starts to get real crafty, which is something he's going to... Uh, be throughout his career of making the system work for him. He convinces the student council at McMaster to start funding the film society a little bit more. And in doing this, they're able to show films and charge money to the student body. And portions of that money would then go to the students involved being able to produce their own films. So he's in music composition courses, but he knows that he has an interest in film, and he's got other friends in these film clubs, and this is where the seed begins to germinate for his uh, first short film, which would be in 1968, called Orientation. Now, Orientation is a 20-minute movie that you can find on YouTube. Uh, it's currently available there, and it is a very uh, typical film of a young first-time filmmaker who's in college, you know, where you're pressed to you know, write what you know. And at that point in your life, you don't know too much. You're currently going to school and you're like, you know, you're dealing with this. So Reitman immediately went to, I'm going to make this short sort of comedic movie about a freshman student who's going through orientation, being hazed by students, uh, registering for classes, uh, dealing with classes. The movie had a lot of like voiceover, which is 
I think typical of early 16 millimeter student type shorts where uh, there's not a lot of sync dialogue. So you just ha- usually have a narrator. When I watched this film on YouTube, I mean, just the look of it, the 16 millimeter grain and it being shot on like a college campus, like it gave me flashbacks of being in uh, <laughs> film school at uh, in Southern Illinois University. Though Reitman being the hustler that he is, doing the film society that they had and screening movies, uh, they were able to screen this film, charge money for it, and it was quite successful. And I think that's something that probably, I don't know, happens too often now. Uh, I think that, you know, back then in the 60s, uh, college, there wasn't a lot of movies shown, especially not small independent films or short films. So probably something of interest to people. And it was probably like extremely cheap too. And the movie was a success. Uh, it did get into festivals. Um, it also was the first kind of spark in Reitman to say, you know, I, I think I might want to do comedy. I think this is something that I'm good at um, because the audience response was really, really positive. A lot of people were laughing. It played well at festivals. And at one of these festivals, a representative from Fox Canada happened to be in the crowd, saw the movie, really enjoyed it, talked to Reitman after the film, said, you know, this is like, really good movie you know you did a really good job and Reitman I think you know that early 20s full of confidence yeah. uh you know ha- is bold enough to say well I think it's good enough to be in theaters like you know you guys should do something with this and <laughs> Fox representative didn't balk at this you know he was like well let me you know show it to my boss and see what he thinks his boss liked the short film and they were actually putting out a movie called John and Mary, which starred Mia Farrow and Dustin Hoffman, a movie that I've never even heard of. So I don't know that that was a a big hit for them. But two actors who are really up and coming about to blow up and 20th Century Fox was really behind this movie, like really pumping it up. And they thought, OK, well, we'll program Ivan Reitman's short orientation before the John and Mary movie. And this seems uh, something that doesn't happen too often. I mean, I guess you see it with movies like uh, Pixar, you know, they'll do like a little short in front of it. But I think this is something a little more common in like the late 60s, early 70s. So according to Reitman, this 20 minute orientation before John and Mary played like gangbusters, uh, the audience got a lot of laughs. And again, this is the moment where he is like, comedy is what I want to do. It's something that makes me happy the joy of like making an audience laugh this is something that maybe i'm talented at or it's something i should pursue and when we were looking at the reitman story um not to reminisce on older episodes that we've done so many times that i do on this uh, podcast i love that you do that but last october we did evil dead and the big the big early portion of our episode is Sam Raimi and his friends getting together in college, starting to make shorts, starting a film society, showing them, making money off those, using that money that they make to make another movie, and really in in trying to do comedies, you know, all the little shorts that they did were goofy comedies. And it's really wild how parallel the story is between Reitman and Raimi. I couldn't uh, uh, help but think it when I was look, reading some of the stuff and I texted you and... Um, and always, it's it's like a weird thing how we're like always on the same page. Every time I text you, you're like, I was just thinking the same thing. And uh, it is wild. So if you go back and hear our Evil Dead episode, if you like this sort of early makings of a young filmmaker um, being really successful in early age, kind of just like 
coming out of the gate hot and like doing all this stuff before they become successful as a feature filmmaker, but having this just such early success and having the drive and also that same hustle that Ramey had and the same uh, wherewithal to surround yourself by talented people, people that are want to make a project successful, that are positive, that are willing to work hard, even if there's not a lot of money involved and trying to constantly move up you know, and constantly take chances, you know, again, like walking up to a representative from a film studio and saying, Hey, I think this movie is good enough. You should put it in front of one of your features, you know, that are, that's playing in theaters. So anyway, that was something that kind of hit me hard, uh, thinking about the Raimi story versus, uh, the Reitman story. I'm glad that you brought up Sam Raimi. If you know that story, it is glaringly obvious how similar the stories are. But like Reitman said, not only do you have to be a hustler with this, but you have to be aggressive, but intelligently aggressive and have the goods to back it up. And both he and Raimi did. They were super young, but they had a vision and they knew what to do with it. It was just gaining the experience. So Ivan and Dan Goldberg jump right into their next film, which they would both produce. Now, quick reference, Dan Goldberg, um, I already mentioned before, would be creative partners with Ivan for over 30 years. He starred in Orientation, and he would also be the writer for Stripes and Meatballs, just for a reference. So these two get their dads to pony up $1,000 each to make the next film, a 16-millimeter feature called The Columbus of Sex. It was based on this anonymous Victorian novel called My Secret Life and was really just about this guy's sex life. It was student-produced, starring students. There was an English teacher that was the narrator, but it also contained swearing and nudity. Now, orientation had some nudity in it, but The Columbus of Sex had a considerable more amount of it. At the very first screening, evidently someone in the audience thought that they had used school money to produce this film and was totally offended and thought that it shouldn't be screened at a university and got a hold of a branch of the police in Canada that dealt with decency called the Obscenity Squad. I think that's a great band name. So the Obscenity Squad was called in and they said that this film violated decency laws. They shut the screening down took the print of the film, and Reitman and Goldberg weren't arrested or booked, but they were convicted under Canada's decency laws. This was considered softcore porn that they were showing in public. Reitman and Goldberg were ordered to pay $300 each and put on probation. I guess Goldberg's um, dealings with the Hamilton police was a little bit more severe, like they actually made him see through his probation, but Reitman had to go through the Toronto police. And when Ivan tells this story, he said he goes in for his first probation meeting and they're like you're here for that obscenity thing right get out of here we don't want to deal with that so Ivan kind of got out of it but this was a stumble in the road for him and could have been the end of his career in some ways this very short-lived career and it certainly scared him now eventually Reitman does recut the film and sold it to an American distributor for I guess a meager profit but I'd love to uh, be able to get a copy of this movie just to see what all the hubbub was about it's probably like super tame very tame. (laughs) So after success with the short film and producing his first feature, Reitman graduates from college in 1969 with a bachelor's in music, but he has really realized that where his heart lies is film. He wants to make movies. He wants to break into the film business, but he really doesn't have any idea how. He, He goes back to getting this hustle game on. It's here that he crosses paths with Bob Shea, who we talk about a lot in our Nightmare on Elm Street episode, really trying to plug a lot of these earlier episodes <laughs> to to convince people to go back and listen to. 
But Bob Shea at the time, uh, before he became the uh, founder and overlord of New Line Cinema and the early start of New Line Cinema, he was basically distributing films, hauling film prints around in the uh, trunk of his car, going to college campuses in America, you know, charging a fee so that they could rent the films from him. Well, Reitman being the hustler that he is, even though he has zero experience in film distribution, he convinces Bob Shea to be the Canadian connection. He's like, I can help you distribute these movies that you're doing in Canada on college campuses and set up these screenings. And Bob Shea is all in. He's like, hey, more uh, money in my pocket. So Reitman and Dan Goldberg work together again. And they help New Line do a Canadian distribution. And their first film that they distribute to college campuses is a pretty big and interesting film. If you've never seen it, uh, Sympathy for the Devil, which came out uh, in between 1969 and 1970. And it's sort of a, uh, it's by Jean-Luc Godard, a very interesting slash pretentious sort of <laughs> documentary style film of the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones playing the concert. Uh, it's like interwoven with footage of Vietnam. It's very of its time, very non-traditional by today's standards of concert uh, movies made of bands playing. But the Rolling Stones were a very popular band with kids. Jean-Luc Godard was a hip foreign filmmaker. So this was a, sort of a perfect combination of a movie to show on college campuses. And the movie proved to be a success for them through distribution. It sort of sealed the deal for Goldberg and Reitman being the Canadian distribution for Bob Shea. Once again, Reitman going for it, the cliche thing to say, but fake it till you make it. Um, yeah. but seemed to uh, not have to fake it very long and had several more successes with distributing films along the way. Reitman's first feature film as a director would be 1971's Foxy Lady. It's a light exploitation comedy. Um, he directs, produces, edits, he does the music, and it's also the film debuts of actors Andrea Martin and Eugene Levy, who would go on to have starring roles in Reitman's next film, 1973's Cannibal Girls. So this movie would be filmed between 71 and 72, and Reitman had a bigger budget this time, somewhere between 12 and 15,000. His dad put in about $2,000, and then five, six other friends contributed one to 2,000 each. Reitman and others banged out this five to six page outline, not even a full script, and planned to shoot it in nine days. Cannibal Girls was marketed as a horror comedy, but there were some challenges that were presented when it came down to editing. Reitman realized that with a script that was not really thought out, that editing this together was massively problematic. So he kept having to reshoot to link scenes together. And with this, you know, you're spending more and more money to reshoot. You've got more film to buy. So Goldberg and Reitman are going further and further into debt, even down to the point of like having to make a deal with the film lab to get reduced pricing for film processing, like cutting a deal with the lab that they'll get part of the film's profits, you know? And that does work for a little while, but still the lab is threatening to stop processing all the time. I mean, it's a giant ordeal. Eventually, Cannibal Girls is made. And somehow, uh, Reitman is able to get Cannibal Girls over to the Cannes Film Festival, but they've got no money for marketing or anything like that. But they do have posters that are really tantalizing with the cannibal women from the movie on the poster and a quote on it saying, these women eat men. So they've got no money, but there is a little bit of hype building around the film. Head of American International Pictures, Sam Arkoff, hears the rumors about the film and decides he has to go see it. Reitman hears that he's coming and knows he needs to make that connection. After Arkoff sees the film, um, he and Reitman talk a little bit and he says, you know, kid, this movie is so terrible, it might just make you some money. 
And with that, Arkov's deal is 50000 in advance and 20% of the gross profits. Reitman can't be more stoked about this, just anything to help he and Goldberg get out of debt. And this, again, sort of mirrors the Sam Raimi story of showing Evil Dead to Irvin Shapiro and him saying, you know, it ain't gone with the wind, boys, but I think it can make you some money. And also this whole idea of like doing a independent horror film in hopes that, you know, you shoot it for cheap and you can sell it for a profit. It's wild that Reitman started in horror. I mean, he did a little bit of comedy, but he's always known for comedy. But he did have this like little period here where he was, you know, kind of knee deep in producing horror movies. But the horror connection doesn't stop here. Let's get to that. Reitman's broke at this time and he needs a job. And he finds that in City TV. He works there for about six months, but he's never worked in television before. He's put in charge of two shows, one called Sweet City Women, which is a talk show. The other's Greed, which is a 90-minute sketch show, like bikini girls, game show elements type of thing. He's the producer and director of that show. And this is where he's starting to get his comedy chops back. It's also where he meets Dan Aykroyd, who's the announcer for Greed. And back on the talk show Sweet City Women... Reitman's old college buddy Doug Henning as a guest. After the taping, they're hanging out, and Henning tells him this idea that he has for a magic show that has this Canadian rock band involved. Reitman thinks it's a great idea, but wants to make it a little bit less expensive, so let's make it a theatrical show. Reitman's able to raise about $10,000 for the show that is soon to be called Spellbound, and a name that a lot of you are familiar with, David Cronenberg, is the one who writes the book for the show. Reitman directs and produces. Howard Shore and Paul Schaefer do the music for the show, while Doug Henning does the illusions and tells the stories. In the first week run of the show, two producers of the Broadway production Godspell happen to see it and think that it's worthy of taking to Broadway. Reitman's totally excited about this idea, but they tell him that there is no way in hell you're going to direct this show. We don't want any of Shore's music, but we like the overall idea and we'll keep the magic aspects. Reitman agrees, but as long as he can still continue to do the show as is, and he can also produce as a partner with them. So Spellbound on Broadway turns into the magic show and had a four and a half year run on Broadway from 74 to 78. And for the first time in his life, Reitman is able to bring home a pretty decent paycheck. Though Reitman still very much had aspirations to be a director, he was finding himself to be a very seasoned and successful producer. With the success of the magic show strong and money in his pocket, he decided to collaborate with David Cronenberg again. Uh, Cronenberg was about to start his third feature. The one that he's most significantly tied to is his first major breakthrough was uh, Orgy of the Blood Parasites, retitled Shivers, one of many ideas Reitman had to make something uh, a little more broad for audiences. You mean Orgy of the Blood Parasites isn't going to get people? No. <laughs> Shivers is a pretty good title. It really is. The movie was filmed in 15 days, and again, we've talked about this when we did our Cronenberg episode on the fly, but in Canada, the government actually will give you money, you know, if you're an artist and you're making horror movies like Orgies of the Blood Parasites. (laughs) Shivers was a minor success, and Reitman and Cronenberg had a pretty good working relationship, so Reitman signed on to produce Cronenberg's Next horror film, the even more well-known Rabbit in 1977. 
Brightman was the one who came up with the idea of having Marilyn Chambers star. Um, she was a successful porn actress at the time. And Reitman's idea was is that, you know, we can't get any well-known actor in our movie, but we can get somebody well-known. Like many of Reitman's ideas that turned out to be a success, Marilyn Chambers was quite good in the movie. It got people in the seats. It was made on a small budget and grossed a million dollars at the box office. All around her, people are dying, and only Rose knows why. You gotta come quick. You gotta come quick and get me. It's Rose. It's gotta be. Something's happened to Rose. Don't scream. Don't panic. He's dead. And the dead can't hurt the living rabbit. The Prime Minister was reluctant to officially declare a state of emergency, but as any citizen in the streets can tell you, martial law has come to Montreal. Uh, get that I'm sorry, sir. Shooting down the victims is as good a way of handling them as, as we have got. comedy but man it would really have been an interesting career to see him do more uh, <laughs> horror based genre type movies yeah. I mean Ghostbusters you know he did a lot of like sci-fi-esque stuff and there's certainly I think parts of Ghostbusters that that's trying to be scary but it would I think it would have been interesting to see him get behind more horror movies even as a producer uh, or continue working with David Cronenberg but you know I, I definitely feel like comedy was in his heart like he you know, was successful as a producer, but was ready to get back to his number one genre. And he certainly did get back into comedy in a big way. He contacted Maddie Simmons, who was the co-founder of the National Lampoon magazine. And if you're unfamiliar with the magazine, it was the hippest, most irreverently satirical, shockingly intelligent, juvenile, pretty hilarious magazine, off color and very popular at the time. I'll be honest, I don't think till I was older that I realized that the National Lampoons started as a magazine. Like when I was a kid, yeah, I loved National Lampoons Vacation and I didn't understand what National Lampoons meant. It just didn't make any sense to me, but I was like, I like these movies. I don't care whatever it means. And then yeah. later as I got older, I was like, oh, there's a Animal House, National Lampoons Animal House, and then find out the genesis of where that name came from. Um, and they did put out like several movies before Vacation, which is kind of wild. Three movies. Yeah. And certainly a brand that is still going today. And with a magazine that's producing a lot of quality comedy and good ideas that are just keep coming out of it. So Ivan cold calls Maddie Simmons and being the brazen guy that he is says, 
you know, I have this show on Broadway, but what I really want to do is direct comedies. I've done these horror movies before, but I got to get back into comedy. And is there any chance that you have something for me? Simmons isn't too interested in this guy just cold calling him out of nowhere. And besides, Hollywood has been coming after the lampoon time and time again with ideas for movies that keep being shot down. So even though he's uninterested, he does mention to Reitman, okay, how about not a movie, but we do have this sketch show that we're trying to branch off and and have like a a live show. Would you be interested in producing that? And of course, Ivan's going to jump at that opportunity. He figures that doing something like this, I mean, obviously is going to be the next step in his career and working with the Lampoon, that's got to be something positive and gets him back into comedy. So he raises about fifteen, twenty thousand dollars for the show to get that going. But the deal that he strikes up with Maddie is if any sketch should come out of the show and it turns into a movie or turns into an idea, Ivan is definitely a producer and also with the ability to direct the film. So Ivan joins the National Lampoon stage show with a cast of get ready for it, Bill Murray, John Belushi, Harold Ramis, Gilda Radner, Brian Doyle Murray, and Joe Flaherty. All of these people are skilled performers, are coming out of Second City, and this is also after the National Lampoon Radio Hour, which was obviously on the radio, but this was going to be live and in front of an audience. The show didn't really have a director, but Ivan did notice that Belushi had taken over as the leader and the director of sorts, kind of, I think he said something like bludgeoning people into getting what he wants. So for a few times, Ivan is sitting in the audience and just observing, not really saying anything. And it takes quite a while for this cast to warm up to this newbie, this guy coming up out of nowhere and offering up ideas. It doesn't go over well more than a few times, but Ivan sits back and watches this incredible cast at work. Remember, this is pre-Saturday Night Live, pre-Second City TV. This is a set of incredible performers who were at the beginning of their careers, very gifted and very arrogant, but could also put on one heck of a comedy show. Eventually, the group did warm up to the idea of Ivan being around and him offering some assistance and opinions, small ones at first, and then kind of increasing to feedback and giving suggestions or offering structure to sketches. And they begin to realize that they needed an outside person to come in and help them with his overall idea and form the best possible show to put out there. There's a lot of history behind the sketch show and this whole incarnation of how all of these folks got together. And it, it feels like a shame to skip all of it over, but this is about Ivan Reitman. And as we all know, with most great things, they have to come to an end. And with this particular cast, Lauren Michaels, the creator, producer of Saturday Night Live, was gearing up to start that show. And he comes in and picks a few people from the cast, Belushi and Radner, to go on and be on Saturday Night Live. Bill and Brian both went to Saturday Night with Howard Cosell. Well, everyone wasn't picked up. And Ivan was kind of left with Harold Ramis and says to him, hey, how about you and I go write a screenplay with something based from this show and let's just see what happens. And thus, this is where the genesis for Animal House is born. Faber College, 1962. The brothers of Delta House have a problem. The dean wants them expelled, the other frat houses want their charter revoked, and the mayor wants them dead. How did this happen? Well, it had something to do with the stolen exam, the toga party, the food fight, the dean's wife, the mayor's daughter, and the dead horse. But then in 1962, they just didn't understand the concept of independent study. National Lampoon's Animal House, starring John Belushi, rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. 
So this begins the team up of Ivan Reitman and Harold Ramis. The head writer of Lampoon's, Doug Kinney, got involved. He had uh, recently done a movie that was kind of a hit. It was a parody movie called High School Yearbook. And he had an idea to do a movie of sort of a Charles Manson in high school comedy. This is like the beginning of Reitman being an idea man of saying, not a bad start, let's take this, let's manipulate it a little bit, let's change some things, make it more uh, broad comedy, you know, so that it can hit a bigger audience. And I feel like that's something that he's done throughout his career. And, you know, he wasn't a fan of the Charles Manson idea. He said, you know, let's change just a little bit around. You know, I made this movie called Orientation that kind of dealt with college. Like, why don't we take this out of high school? Because it was definitely an R-rated idea. High school kids aren't going to be able to go see an R-rated movie about high school. So, Ivan Reitman had the idea, let's change this to college so it makes more sense. We can, you know, do R-rated stuff. And then we, you know, thinking ahead of like making money, like an audience that can pay tickets and actually get into the show will come and see the movie. And so this was the early makings of Animal House. And he borrowed from his experience of the orientation movie of kids in college and all the different facets, all the different social structures that go on in college. And with the help of Lampoon writer Chris Miller, who had a lot of ideas and experiences of college, was going to incorporate those into the script. And so these four guys worked on the script, got it something that was tight, funny, could be shot for relatively low budget, and that would be a broad enough comedy to where they can, they can make some money. And I think that's, again, Uh, Ivan Reitman, you don't think of him so much as a writer because he's not credited as the writer, you know, like Ghostbusters. He came up with some of the best ideas to edit the story down to make it more universal to an audience. And so I think it's good that they had someone who's coming from a producer aspect to say, let's shape this. Let's think about dollars and cents, you know, at the end of the day, but also let's make this really, really, really funny and different. And so what came out of that was Animal House. Now, with all the involvement that Ivan Reitman had with this. He spent two years of his life kind of helping shape uh, Animal House. And at this point, they were thinking, you know, we can get Belushi. Reitman felt assured that he was going to get to direct this thing. When it came time to find a director, uh, he was very, very, very upset that he was passed over um, because he was still looked at as a producer, even though he had directed one movie. No one had seen it, and so they felt they needed to find a director who had either A, more experienced, or B, had a movie that was a hit, and that director was John Landis. Uh, John Landis had only done two movies, but his last movie, Kentucky Fried Movie, that he did with the Zucker Brothers, was a smash hit. And so John Landis got the gig. Reitman still was able to come on as a producer and still had a lot of creative input, but he was still yearning to finally get to be the director that he wanted. And he just kept getting stuck as being looked at as a producer. Now, the timing on Animal House's release was perfect because Saturday Night Live became a smash. It was the hippest comedy show to see, like, people were tuning in. Uh, Belushi became the face of that. He was getting beamed into people's homes via television. People knew his face. They knew his name. Animal House hit hard. Like they said, they did a couple test screenings and just people were just, like, falling out of their seats laughing. Uh, Animal House cost $3 million to make. It went on to gross about $140 million. Kind of wild. 1978, second highest grossing movie of 1978. What was the first? The first was Grease, which totally oh, makes sure, sense. sure, sure, uh, But it's kind of wild. Like third movie, Jaws 2. Fourth movie, Heaven Can't Wait. Fifth movie, Every Which Way But Loose with uh, Clint Eastwood, Eastwood, who, you know, is a big name. Yeah. 
But you go all the way down to number 10, Superman. Whoa. If, if it's any indicator of where superhero movies were, 1978, kind of nuts because, you know, you would think it would be like number one or number two, but... How mainstream audiences' feelings have changed. Yeah, things have, things have changed. Comedy, a good comedy always seems like it becomes like a pretty big hit. You know, you, sometimes you can't go wrong. So Animal House was a huge hit. Uh, everybody was making money. Reitman... It's like, I got, I got to get a movie now. You know what I mean? Like I've proven myself, damn it. Like, you know, success after success for 10 years, I've been like, every time I touch something, it makes money. You know, I've got good ideas. I've got wherewithal. I've got experience. Like I want my movie. And finally, <laughs> finally, he was given an opportunity to do a movie. He didn't have much of an idea other than let's do a movie like a camp counselor movie, something that takes place over the summer, something that we can shoot in one location that's really cheap. He really knew that what he needed was to get Bill Murray involved. Bill Murray got on SNL eventually, um, also became a face that people recognized. The genesis of Meatballs happened in the same way a lot of movies with Bill Murray happen, where a director or writer's like, We've got this mediocre idea, but, you know, Bill Murray will come in and do his comedic magic and his faces and people will look past the mediocre script or the silliness of the story because, you know, he can elevate the movie. Now, just because you need Bill Murray for your film doesn't mean that you're going to get him, even in 78, 79. And even when you go back, you know, to doing the National Lampoon sketch show together, Bill straight up turns Ivan down. He's like, you're directing now? Nah, I've got other things to do. But Ivan's not going to stop at that. He calls in his old pal, Harold Ramis, and says, I need to touch up on this script. Harold takes the story and, while incorporating all of the camp elements, kind of refocuses the story from being more about the counselors to just about Tripper, the character that Bill Murray would soon play. Ivan gets the script and calls Bill and says, Harold's done this polish. It's really great. You need to read it. Of course, Bill's not going to read it just because you tell him he needs to. And he knows he's going to be starting SNL in the fall that year. Still, this isn't going to deter Ivan. He felt like if he didn't get Bill for Meatballs, this might be the end of his career because Meatballs wasn't going to be a home run without him. He even puts up half of the money for the movie, gambling all of the money that he made from the magic show. And this budget wasn't astronomical, but it was $500,000. And that much money with no star, it gives me heart palpitations thinking about doing that. So production's about ready to start, but a week before Animal House comes out, and it's an immediate smash. So Ivan's already feeling this pressure. He can't have Meatballs be the bummer movie to come out after this giant blockbuster that he was involved with. Finally, thankfully, after this massive gamble that he's made, Bill's lawyer calls him and says, Bill's going to do the movie. He's not going to be there on the first day of production, but he will be there. And by the second day of production, Bill shows up, hasn't read the script, but memorizes what he needs to immediately. But he changes a lot of the punchlines and makes the film uniquely his own. And this is where Ivan's like, this is exactly why we needed this guy. Because the script needs all the help it can get from the main star. Ivan's beyond pleased and relieved with Bill's performance and feels good about the movie. So let's fast forward to the first test screening that Ivan has. It's for three studios. There's no audience. And this is the first time that Ivan has seen this movie outside of the editing room. And he realizes that it kind of sucks. And this is not good because this is an independently financed film. Ivan is hoping that a studio is going to buy it and put it out. 
But the positive thing that came out of this screening is that Ivan realizes the story here is between Tripper, Bill, and the main kid, Rudy. So Ivan goes back into the editing room and cuts about 30, 45 minutes out of the movie and calls Harold Ramis back in and says, this is what the problem is. I realize that the story is between Bill and this kid. I need you to write more scenes and make this the true heart of the film. He then calls Bill and says, I need you for two more days for some reshoots. And luckily Bill's able to do that. There's no him and hawing back and forth. And what comes out is the movie that we have now, a much better version of what Meatballs truly had at its core. It's a, it is a really heartfelt movie. And luckily for Ivan, it went on to test well with audiences and the new scenes went over exceptionally well. And I think that's the mark of a good filmmaker to be able to self-identify realize something's not working because you know i think it takes an incredible amount of ego to be a filmmaker and you have to believe in what you're doing and sometimes that ego can blind artists and they'll say you know no this is good i made it it's good and push past everything criticisms and for him to say no this isn't working like we need to and, and that we need to go fix it you know let's here's what here's what we need we need to add these scenes, we're going to reshoot them, tack them onto the movie, if that's what we have to do to make this thing functioning, to make it funny. And when you watch Meatballs, you can kind of see that. You see that it's a movie that without Bill and Rudy, there's not a lot going on that is enjoyable. And don't get me wrong, I like Meatballs. I think it's a fun, light, summery, I like to watch it during the summertime. But I think that if you if you take Bill Murray out of the movie and you replaced it with somebody who isn't doing Bill Murray's stuff, it's a mediocre movie. Good on Ivan Reitman for spotting that and noticing it and saying, you know, this is fixable, but we gotta we gotta cut out the stuff that's not working, reshoot some stuff real fast, put it back in. Both Animal House and Meatballs kind of get lumped into SNL related movies. Bill and John Belushi are massive. Uh, by the end of this year. And it's at this point in Ivan's career when everything changes. Just in this short span of time, these two movies completely change his life. Which brings us to 1981 and Reitman's first studio-funded film, reuniting writers and old college friends Len Bloom and Dan Goldberg and teaming them up with Harold Ramis. Together, these guys brought us Stripes which was also co-starring Harold Ramis along with Bill Murray. And this would be the only movie that Bill Murray signed on to two weeks in advance for Reitman, which was kind of a surprise. But it's been said numerous times that the reason that he signed on to do this was when Harold agreed to co-star in the film. Stripes turned out to be a financial success for Columbia Pictures on a $10 million budget. It grossed over $85 million, but really uh, compared to what would come after this film, that's that's some chump change. But it did further enforce that teaming up with Harold Ramis and Bill Murray was certainly a winning combination. And that combination turned out to be one of the biggest hits for Reitman of the 80s, and that was Ghostbusters. And also this is the point in Reitman's career where he was thought of as a director. He was able to walk into Columbia TriStar and say, I've got this idea for a movie. He didn't even have a script yet. It's about these guys who are Ghostbusters and they're working in New York City and it's going to have special effects. Like, okay, you can make the movie. He's at where he wants to be. He's considered a director. He's got the backing of the studio. He's got a partnership with friends and colleagues that are talented and they go on to make one of the most iconic comedies of all time. We did an entire episode on Ghostbusters, so we're going to take this moment here to like say, you know, if you if you want to hear some background on Ghostbusters, uh, we encourage you to check out that episode. 
we're going to move along into Reitman's career because we could spend so much time on Ghostbusters. We and spent an entire yeah, episode. We did a whole episode on it. <laughs> and, uh, and everybody knows Ghostbusters. Everybody loves Ghostbusters. I mean, it's the movie that Reitman will be forever remembered for. We love it. I mean, it's one of our favorite movies here on the podcast. Yeah. Reitman, of course, went on to do Ghostbusters 2, working with the same group of people. But he took a tiny detour, something that was a little bit different for him. Uh, after the success of Ghostbusters, it would almost be hard to follow up the magnitude of a success like that. What do you, Where do you go next? But Reitman um, kind of took a left turn. You know, He did a, a movie called Legal Eagles that came out in 1986, Really bizarre name. Never understood it when I was younger. It was like Legal <laughs> Eagles. Like I was thinking of like Iron Eagle or something. You know, so many Eagle type movies back then. But working with Robert Redford, who, you know, is for someone like Reitman, you know, he's working with this marquee star from the 60s and 70s, like a true Hollywood legend. And so just the opportunity to work with somebody like that, even if the script or the story wasn't um, like a high concept type movie that he had just come off of. And Deborah Winger was no slouch either at this time. In this movie, again, he was given a big budget, $30 million. It wasn't a smash success like Ghostbusters, but it did make $90 million at the box office, which kind of, again, continued on Reitman's winning streak of being able to produce comedies or lighthearted fare and have them be successful with a broad audience. But by the late 80s, he would go back and work with his original collaborators and do Ghostbusters 2. And though not successful as Ghostbusters 1, it still was a hit commercially. But in the 80s and early 90s, he would start a new collaboration with somebody who wasn't really deemed a comedic force, but Reitman saw something in this actor, and they would team up for three movies together. In a secret lab somewhere in the Western Hemisphere... The perfect human specimen has been born. He has the strength of 10 men and the wisdom of 20. He also has a twin brother. I have a brother? Oh my goodness, are you looking good? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Born to be bad. And Danny DeVito. Way to go, Mom. Are twins. My name is Julius. I'm your twin brother. Obviously. The moment I sat down, I thought I was looking into a mirror. Only their mother can tell them apart. Twins. The new comedy from Ivan Reitman. Julius. What? What are you, are you allergic to something? You all swelled up. You look like you're ready to explode. I love it when you hit people. Who are you? Vincent's brother. We're twins. That's right. Twins. Coming this Christmas. So this unlikely comedic partnership would come in the form of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, we've talked about Arnold on this podcast so many times. <laughs> we love him on this podcast. And the joining of him and Ivan Reitman does seem pretty unlikely. They kicked off their partnership with twins in 1988. But up until that point, comedy was not something that Arnold was known for, really. I mean, he was known for funny one-liners, don't get me wrong. And they, you know, he does offer, I think there's some humor in 
those movies, but he was coming off of pretty much becoming the biggest action star of the 80s, just kind of running through these. 1982, Conan the Barbarian. 1984, Conan the Destroyer. Also in 84, The Terminator. 1985, Red Sonia. 1985, also Commando. Uh, follows that up with Raw Deal, The Running Man, Predator, and Red Heat. Nonstop action. Nonstop action. Nonstop. He's the big guy who's like killing a bunch of other people. Yeah. <laughs> and he was looking, I think he was at a point in his career where he had proven himself as a commodity, as a number one action star, and naturally wanted to try to test the waters in something different. Schwarzenegger himself thought that he was funny. Uh, he It was happenstance. He happened to see Ivan Reitman with his family. Schwarzenegger was with his family on a ski trip, Ivan Reitman said in an interview that Arnold came up to him and he said, I could be a Ghostbuster. And <laughs> Ivan Reitman was like, what? Okay. Schwarzenegger said, you know, I think I can be funny. And Ivan Reitman is somebody who I think recognizes talent was like, okay, you know, this is interesting. You know, didn't like laugh it off. And he had uh, been wanting to work with Danny DeVito in a while and happened to run into him also on another family trip. And he said, oh, you know, actually I'm trying to line up my next project. Ivan Reitman was kicking around some ideas. He went to to a group of writers that he knew and that whole process turned into twins and teaming up Arnold Schwarzenegger with Danny DeVito, a little guy, big guy combo that has worked in comedy for, for many, many years. Um, but the movie ended up turning out to be something more than that. And that's where Ivan Reitman comes in with his heartwarming touch. You know, he takes a story that does have a lot to do with family. It does have a lot to do with loyalty and friendship. All of these themes that have worked in so many of his movies throughout his career. And Twins really was a different movie for Arnold. I mean, he really plays like a dork in this movie. I mean, they have him dressed like a dork. And a lot of the jokes, I mean, there are some jokes with his physique. You know, he like rips through a t-shirt. This is a movie that turned out to be one of Arnold Schwarzenegger's biggest hits. Audiences loved it. They loved seeing Arnold Schwarzenegger be funny and play something different where he's not just killing guys. Uh, Schwarzenegger had a huge jump. You know, he after this, he did Total Recall, which became a huge hit and also was much more like intelligent action movie. I think Ivan Reitman saw this evolution of Schwarzenegger and said, you know, let's take a comedic concept. And again, Ivan Reitman using these high concept ideas of like this cop but he becomes a kindergarten teacher because he's <laughs> undercover i mean such a high concept idea like so many of his other movies and that way they were able to utilize arnold schwarzenegger doing some action um, but then also these funny scenes of him interacting with the kids enough excitement to where it's a broad audience movie but it's pg-13 very entertaining i think it's the best of the bunch that Reitman and Schwarzenegger did together. To me, Kindergarten Cop is endlessly funny. I think it also is like Arnold with the kids. I could just, I, I would love to see just like an hour of outtakes of that. There's just so much there. And they would do a third movie together in 1994, which is a movie that I honestly didn't see when it came out. And I think it had a lot to do with the fact that it's Arnold Schwarzenegger's a scientist and he gets pregnant because they're working on a fertility drug along with a doctor who, again, he reteams with Danny DeVito, the movie Junior. And I'd always kind of put it off. I'd seen like this, I was working in a movie theater when this came out. And I remember, you know, I'd seen bits and pieces of it. And at that time, this 1994, I was already into like the indie film scene, like watching movies like Pulp Fiction and stuff. And I was like, ugh, Junior, this looks terrible. I went to watch it a few days ago when I did Twins. I kind of did all three of the Reitman Schwarzenegger movies. And I texted you 
I think like halfway through and yeah. I, and I was, and I said somehow Reitman, DeVito and Schwarzenegger are like making this absolute ridiculous movie work. And I think this is where Arnold Schwarzenegger does some of his best acting because he is like having all the emotions of a pregnant woman, like all these scenes where he's, he's playing a character that you haven't seen him play before on screen and being so vulnerable and like loving. And I mean, you, you saw a little bit in twins, but this is like full on, like a different side of Schwarzenegger that anybody's seen. And one thing I noticed about that was that it's not making fun of it. It's not making fun of this is Arnold Schwarzenegger having the same hormones and feelings as as a woman. It's really like him experiencing that and we're experiencing it with him. And yeah, I completely agree. It really does show a really cool side of his acting ability and that Schwarzenegger was up for doing this movie too. And I think too, they like took the Danny DeVito character, like he's similar to how he is in Twins, you know, he's... Yeah. He's kind of a hard edge and like mean, but they softened him a little bit and actually gave him like feelings early on in the movie where, you know, he's still going to be the doctor to his ex-wife who's having a baby with another man. I have to say the biggest comedy element of this movie is Emma Thompson. She, yeah. I mean, she's clearly like the buffoon in the movie, but I mean, it's it's nonstop comedy and with that one. Her and Schwarzenegger have chemistry. Yeah. And they take this movie all the way. I mean, all the yeah. way to Arnold Schwarzenegger having the baby. And it's actually like a very charming movie. It's very 90s. Yes. Um, I, I feel, you know, there's certainly things in there that wouldn't fly today, but thought it was a total throwaway movie that I never gave a chance. And I was glad that I went back and revisited it. And again, you know, just thinking about Reitman's career, it's like, wow, it's like he did three movies with Schwarzenegger and all three of these movies. I mean, like Kindergarten Cop, another one that made like $200 million at the box office and Junior making considerably less at the box office, but still a success. And uh, Schwarzenegger wrote a really nice little piece saying that, you know, Ivan Reitman was the person who took a chance on him, took him seriously about wanting to try comedy and really helped him because he said, you know, I need direction. I want someone to tell me what to do and help me along the way. And Reitman found it refreshing because, you know, he was used to working with all of these comedy geniuses who had the chops and they're like, you don't need to tell me how to be funny. You just let me riff here. Let me do my thing. And Reitman, I think, was very happy to have an actor who like was asking him like, hey, you know, how can I make this funny? What can I do here? Like, you know, how can we make this scene work? They had a really good working relationship, very successful working relationship. And again, Ivan Reitman continuing his streak of like, I'm going to try something within the comedy realm and do something a little bit different, something that people aren't expecting. And Schwarzenegger really didn't do many comedies outside of working with Reitman. You know, I think that was his, you know, he felt comfortable like working with a filmmaker that was like he could trust and like, you know, knew what his limitations were and knew how to coach him in a way to make these movies work. Again, if you can catch Junior, it's worth your time if you haven't seen it. And as somebody who remembered this movie, um, I remembered liking it, but I, I felt like Justin was going to not be into it. And I, you must have said it at least three times. And I was very pleased to get that text from you. Well, throughout the 80s and all of this time with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Ivan's also producing films. In 1981, he did Heavy Metal, followed by Space Hunter. In 87, he did Big Shots. Justin, you, you have a fondness for this movie, right? Yeah, this is one of those movies that uh, I totally don't remember too much, but when I was like 11 years old, I thought it was awesome. It was one of those movies that like predated Home Alone for like 
kids doing uh grown up stuff and getting into having some sort of like adventure and a mix up and I don't know if it holds up but I loved it as a kid. You got to love 80s movies where they put kids in like adult yeah. situations. I love that. Some more you might have heard of would be 88 Feds followed by Casual Sex. Stop or my mom will shoot. No one can forget that Estelle Getty, Sylvester Stallone combo. I mean, what a winning pair there. I can't tell if you're being sarcastic <laughs> or serious. I think I was being serious. Oh, okay. Maybe, I don't know, maybe a little half and half, but really, again, pairing two unlikely people. Yeah. And I think, too, like Stallone took his shot at comedy. He saw that Schwarzenegger yeah. was doing it. He's like, hey, I went in on that. Ivor Reitman, can you get me in a comedy movie? There's a funny uh, moment in Twins where, I think, it, yeah, it's in Twins, where Schwarzenegger walks by Stallone, like a, a poster of Stallone, and he's like, it's just his rippling muscles. And Arnold looks at him and looks at himself and like chuckles really hard and walks by like, that part got me. And following Stop or My Mom Will Shoot the same year, Reitman was the executive producer on what would become a very lucrative children's movie franchise, Beethoven. It, I think they've made like eight of these now. It's a very charming movie. It is. Know? The first one's, you know, yeah, I, I haven't seen one. I don't think I've seen anything past one. They even made a TV show that Ivan Reitman produced. Oh, that's right. That was in 94. Yeah. Well, he produced the sequel in 93, and that was also the same year that he directed a little Diamond in the Rough movie that we love on this podcast, and that was Dave. Hail to the chief, he's the one we all say hail to. Dave Kovic was an ordinary guy. Mr. Kovic, your government needs your help. We just happened to look like the president. You're a very handsome man. Thank you, Mr. President. Just get rid of the grin. You look like a schmuck. Dave, something has happened to the president. What about the vice president? The vice president is mentally unbalanced. Is this legal? Oh, yeah. Probably. We think so. Yes. Suddenly, Dave has a great job. I can't tell you the whole story. It's kind of a national emergency kind of thing, but you got to help me cut the budget a little. you got to cut the budget. He has a great house. Do I need to dial nine? Who does these books? I mean, if I ran my business this way, I'd, I'd be out of business. And he has a great wife. Why can't you die from a stroke like everybody else? She hates me. Yes. And the amazing thing is, everyone loves him. God bless you. God bless America! It's President Mitchell lately, huh? Has this guy been having too many Happy Meals for lunch or what? Kevin Klein, the Academy Award-winning star of A Fish Called Wonder. I once caught a fish. This big. Sigourney Weaver. I'm talking to you. Will you please turn around? You know, if you want to be the same old selfish. Um. From Ivan Wright, the director of Ghostbusters, Twins, and Kindergarten Cop. Before we get started, uh, a couple things I'd like to go over in the budget. Mr. President. Yes? I'm going to kill him. You can't kill a president. He's not a president. He's an ordinary person. I can kill an ordinary person. In a country where anybody can become president. Anybody just did. Kevin Klein, Sigourney Weaver. Make a nice president, Dave Kovic. Dave. Okay, let's get back to work. You know, going through all these Reitman movies, and we've watched a lot of Reitman movies so in many. the last two weeks, I kept going back to Dave. Outside of Ghostbusters, which is undeniably what Reitman will always be remembered for, I think Dave is his like, next best film. I think it's a pretty underrated movie. I, I think it's one that 
one, you can easily forget that Reitman was the director, and two, forget how many elements in that movie are so Reitman-esque. Again, a high concept of a guy who looks like the president who's going to get swapped (laughs) out. Each character learns something along the way. They learn about family, friendship, uh, being honorable, really heartwarming. It's really funny. It's got a great ending. A pre-Ice Storm Kevin Klein and Sigourney Weaver combo. It has all the makings of a good comedy slash family film slash heartwarming movie that isn't too sappy, but also isn't like, you know, gross out, hard R comedy. Of all the movies that Reitman's done, I hope that more people like are watching Dave and like appreciating it. Everybody's seen Ghostbusters, but if there was one movie to walk away from listening to this podcast, it's like track down Dave and and give it a watch because it really, and it's held up extremely well and a nice little cameo by his friend Schwarzenegger. This movie doesn't come up very much at all, except for I usually have news programs as default channels and like as background noise at my house. And I will say that more often than not, whenever I hear Dave referenced, it's having to do with some type of political commentary. This is a movie I've seen countless times, and each one of those times, it does not lose any type of charm or enchantment. It is just a wonderful movie. And I, man, Sigourney Weaver, again, there's nothing that that woman can't do that doesn't turn to gold. And I guess we're finding that out for Ivan Reitman, really. And produced Dave, too. Yeah. And two other movies that Reitman produced in the 90s that I think are pretty underrated funny movies is The Late Shift, which was like a biopic of the fight between Jay Leno and David Letterman, um, who's going to get The Tonight Show after Johnny Carson retired. And Private Parts, which is the story of Howard Stern, and Stern plays himself. And I've watched that movie like five or six times, and I continue to enjoy it. And it was like the first um, time I remember seeing like Paul Giamatti, you know, such a dynamic actor. Private Parts made me like Howard Stern. And The Late Shift, I remember being excited when that movie came out on HBO and yeah. enjoyed it too. In in the late 90s, uh, Reitman directed... Six Days, Seven Nights, which is a movie I saw in theaters. And that's another one that I think is, you know, it's not the greatest movie, but I think Reitman knew like Harrison Ford doing what Harrison Ford does best. He's got good chemistry with Anne Heche. And I always liked Anne Heche. I, you know, she was uh, one of my favorites of the 90s, did a lot of great roles. But that's a movie too that I rewatched. And I put that in my stack of the Sunday, Saturday afternoon movie, <laughs> a Six Days, Seven Nights. Perfect fit for Saturday, Sunday afternoon. I love your weekend movie suggestions. Six Days, Seven Nights is so entertaining. That type of buddy movie that's an adventure. There's some legit nail-biting moments in this movie. And I've seen Six Days, Seven Nights many times before, but it had been a second. And a movie like this, it's hard. Uh, you have to really want to not be entertained to not like this movie. Yeah. Lindsay, you and I watch a lot of movies. Some would say an unhealthy amount, but whatever. Yeah. At least you're married. You know, some, <laughs> you know, some directors, I've seen all their movies, you know, there's directors I like and they have a few movies when I'm like, one day I'm going to watch Martin Scorsese's Kundin. You know, you every, every director, you have those one or two movies. Yeah. And, and with Ivan Reitman, I hadn't really thought about it, you know, and then when he passed away, if you're like us, you're like, I got to go see all the movies of this director that I haven't seen. It's weird how it works that way. You don't like appreciate yeah. When they're living like, hey, he probably would appreciate the support of watching some of these lesser known movies when he was alive. But long story short, we looked at his filmography 
And coincidentally, it was the same four movies that we both hadn't seen, and that was No Strings Attached, Father's Day. My Super Ex-Girlfriend. And Draft Draft Day. And so we uh, sat down, found these movies, watched them, and I got to say, I can understand why these are the four movies of Ivan Reitman's that I hadn't seen. Father's Day probably being, you know, I looked and I was like, oh, you know, I remember when this movie came out and it's Billy Crystal and Robin Williams. I don't know. Neither character seems really funny and the situations don't seem as funny. And the kid that they picked was just, a man, you just hate him. You're like, just leave this kid. It was supposed to be heartwarming, but I wasn't as charmed by yeah. any of the characters as, as I normally would be. And my super ex-girlfriend was another one where it, you know, I went along for the ride. It's again with all these high concepts. I don't realize how many high concept movies, but he gets into some science fiction, man. Yeah, he gets to science fiction. He breaks up with a girl. uh, Luke Wilson breaks up with his girlfriend who played by Uma Thurman, who is a superhero. And so she gets very angry and exacts (laughs) revenge on him by using all her superhero powers. The thing about sometimes with Ivan Reitman movies is they get so ridiculous that you have to just give yourself over to it. Uma Thurman's dedication to being insane was, I don't know, it was pretty good. I almost wish that it went a little bit darker because it has this sort of fatal attraction vibe happening. It did, yeah. And when I thought that it was going to go in that direction, (laughs) I was like, oh, I didn't realize that this was the thing. And then they just never really went there with it. They kept it light. Yeah. Anna Faris in that. Yeah. You know. Yeah, good cast. Yeah. And no strings attached. I honestly got it confused with, uh, I picked up the box and I was like, oh, wait a minute. I've seen this movie before. Justin Timberlake and uh, Mila Kunis. Mila Kunis. And I was like, well, wait, no, this isn't no strings attached. It was like, oh, yeah. It it's was that uh, other one. the other one. It, but uh, <laughs> it's like, man, they have similar, it's the same story. Uh, Friends with Benefits was Friends the benefits, other movie. Right. But yep. sort of same, similar box, you know, two young, attractive, hip people. And uh, so No Strings Attached was concept of like friends with benefits type situation. Don't want to fall in love with each other. We're just going to have sex and meet up occasionally and not let feelings get involved. And we all know that that's not going to happen. Ashton Kutcher and Natalie Portman. We had a little bit difference of opinion. I just I didn't like this movie. You You texted me and you're like, it's not that bad. And I was like, I don't hate it, but I feel like I've seen... Natalie Portman and Ashton Kutcher play these same characters like, you know, half a dozen times. And if I had seen if I had seen this movie when it came out, I probably wouldn't have felt that way. Early appearance by uh, Greta Gerwig, who would go on to be, you know, nominated for an Oscar as a director and be in a lot of movies. And uh, Mindy Kaling, early comedic role from her. Her bits in the movie are are yeah, definitely winners. They're, they're my favorite. And Ivan Reitman, you know, it's again, Ivan Reitman spotting comedic talent early yeah, on yeah. before people blow up. There was something about the story, not just the Friends with Benefits, it was more the Natalie Portman character that affected me. I felt like this story definitely happened to someone. There were too many nuances. I know this situation and it's hurting me and I know that it's going to end up completely fine in the end. But I think in my head at the same time, I'm like, but that's not real life. That's not how it's going to end. Anyway, this movie is pretty middle of the road in comparison with Reitman's other movies, but I, I did not think it was so bad. And finally, we have Draft Day, which was a movie that I watched first of all the Reitman movies. I was like, I'm going to start from the last movie he did, you know, as a director. And 
I've always been a fan of Costner, especially Costner in like a sports themed movie. I admittedly know probably less about football than anybody, um, definitely any male that I've ever met or known in my entire life. I was watching the movie with my wife and they would show like, you know, the movies about draft day and football, which I don't entirely understand. But when they would go to these different states and cities, they would show like the stadium, you know, would say the team, what city they were from. My wife was like, yeah, I mean, obviously we know these uh, teams go with these cities. I don't know what I have to put it on the screen. I was like, yeah, the last three, I, (laughs) I couldn't tell you what team is from what Um, I know a little bit about baseball. To me, Draft Day was like the boring version of the movie Moneyball, which I enjoyed. Draft Day wasn't bad. It reminded me how much I like Dennis Leary. He's really great in the movie. And the last 20 minutes, it's like Costner doing what he does best. And that's like a very confident middle-aged white man who um, does really wonderful things under pressure. I was prepared to not like this movie at all. I will watch any Kevin Costner movie. I'm not the biggest fan of him or sports in general, aside from baseball. But I'll tell you, after about 25 minutes, I found myself completely engaged in it. And I was resentful at first that I was engaged. And then, I don't know, about an hour in, I'm like, okay, I'm in it. I got to see what happens. There's some sort of weird psychological thing with me, I think, that how much I dislike watching sports, but I love sports movies. Okay. And how little I understand about football, but I can't really think of a football movie that I dislike. Oh, okay. It's kind of strange, you know, but even golf, I don't understand the game of golf. I could watch Tin Cup any day of the week with <laughs> Kevin Costner. I don't get sick of any tropes that happen in sports movies. They get me every time. There was one cool thing that Reitman did with Draft Day. They did a couple times some split screens, and I can't recall other than in 2016's Ghostbusters Answer the Call where they do this, where the action that's in the frame uh, comes out of of the frame into like the black bars, and that's what it does in Ghostbusters. But in Draft Day, it's split screen, and if someone's using their hands or their elbow will go into like the next frame. And it was jarring at first, but I liked it because I hadn't seen it before. And the same thing with Ghostbusters 2016, which Reitman also produced. Every time it happens in that, it makes the action even more impactful. The only movie that we haven't mentioned that Reitman directed and produced was 2001's Evolution, starring David Duchovny, Orlando Jones, and Julianne Moore. I've always been super entertained by this movie. Again, going back to the sci-fi comedy, this one is a little bit more over the top and, and yeah, kind this of one's slapsticky. Definitely, definitely goofier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think it, it's one of those that... If you're entertained by the cast, which that's the thing. He's always got to get a great cast to sell these outlandish stories. I think Evolution does a good job of that. And this would be the second film to come out of Reitman's Montecito Picture Company production house. But before that would be a movie that kind of started the, not reboot, but revitalization of the hard R comedy. And that's 2000's Road Trip. Now, the ante would certainly be upped after that, but Road Trip's kind of what began. Yeah, and Road Trip is what kicked off Todd Phillips' career, which uh, he, you know, became the king of the hard R comedies uh, with the Hangover movies. But after Road Trip, Reitman produced and Todd Phillips directed Old School, which I consider to be, that's the start of this moment in history where hard R comedies were back, where you saw nudity, sexual situations, 
lot of drug use, a lot of swearing, totally crazy antics from grown adults. And what's funny is that this movie is not a carbon copy, but it's certainly very much like Animal House. And looking back on it and how many people thought Animal House was trash and just, you know, who would watch this movie at such lowbrow humor to look at old school when it's so much more over the top than Animal House was. I mean, Animal House certainly had its moments, but yeah, old school, old school went there. And old school would restart the career of Vince Vaughn, who had kind of hit a slump. It would jumpstart the career of Luke Wilson and Will Ferrell and really, again, launch into this series of hard arm movies with Wedding Crashers, the Hangover movies, Super Bad, 40-Year-Old Virgin, the genres, like the raunch comedy, sex comedies. I didn't even realize that Ivan Reitman like produced Old School and Road Trip. You know, I think you can credit him as helping kicking off the reboot of the the hardcore R-rated raunchy comedies. And he also dipped back into his 70s roots in thriller and horror type movies with uh, three movies that he produced in the 2000s, Disturbia, Chloe, and The Uninvited. And I hadn't seen Disturbia or The Uninvited. Two totally entertaining movies. I like Disturbia uh, much more so than the other. And Chloe, man, yeah, I, I would watch it again. Yeah, I haven't seen Uninvited, but Chloe and Disturbia are both movies that I think functioning thrillers that are rewatchable. So this really just kind of further proves that Reitman throughout his entire life knew what worked in a movie. And he was always servicing the audience and knowing what would make the audience react. And pretty prolific. I mean, if he wasn't directing a movie, he was producing one or two every year. I really don't know how he did it. It's kind of nuts. So we're getting to the tail end here of Reitman's career, which was unfortunately cut short due to his untimely death. But when you listen to these interviews with Reitman, the one thing that he always brings up is his family. You know, he's like, I was on a trip with my family. He said he always tried to shoot in summer so that he could have his family on set, that he wouldn't spend time away from his family. And his son, Jason Reitman, decided that he wanted to do filmmaking, not at first, but Reitman encouraged it, helped him get his start. And Reitman's final partnership collaborations were with his son, which is a really amazing way to, if your career has to end, a way to go out. And Jason Reitman, Ivan Reitman's son, had had a really massive hit with Juno. I mean, kind of a gargantuan hit. I forget how huge that movie was. He was looking, and Jason Reitman brought a movie to Ivan Reitman and said, hey, I think this is a movie that you'd be good at directing. It was a book called Up in the Air. And the more Reitman started working with the movie and trying to get a script uh, worked out, he eventually was like, you know what? I don't get this movie. And he kicked it back over to his son and said, I think this is a movie that you should direct or at least take a crack at the script. And Jason Reitman reworked the script. Ivan Reitman thought it was really great. And he was like, you know, I want to produce this movie for you. You direct, I'll produce. They had a really successful collaboration with this. Up in the Air was pretty critically acclaimed. Jason Reitman went on to do a few other movies and fans have been clamoring for a another Ghostbusters sequel, like a legacy sequel, one that attached Ghostbusters 1 and 2. We won't get into the debate over 2016. We've already 
put a toe in that water in our social media and got uh, really, really crapped on for even suggesting that it was a decent movie at all. Do people know that Ghostbusters 3, whatever you want to call it, was originally intended for Ivan Reitman to direct and Harold Ramis was going to write, but then Harold Ramis died and Reitman kind of put the kibosh on that and that's when Paul Feig jumped on and did it but it is under the you know Montecito Picture Company yeah yeah and Reitman did produce yeah but they listened to the fans Jason Reitman was going to direct Ivan Reitman was going to produce and be a creative consultant and inspiration I remember revelations and I looked as he opened the sixth seal there was a great earthquake Judgment Day. Raise a call. I'm calling about what happened in New York. There hasn't been a ghost sighting in 30 years. Oh my God. What is happening here? His grandfather was a Ghostbuster. Something was coming and he knew it. I think we opened the gates of hell. Hey, have you missed us? When you hear interviews with Jason Reitman, even before his father's passing, you know, he's like, this is a love letter to my dad. You know, this is like... Everybody loved Ghostbusters and we're trying to give the fans what they want. You know, we're trying to take all the things that made the movie magical and like replicate that in a way that's something fresh and something new. And it was a huge success. And Ivan Reitman was very happy with the way his son continued on the story, the legacy of Ghostbusters, and set it up for yet probably more movies that are going to come out. It's kind of great because they got to do this whole tour together of like doing interviews and so many of the interviews that you look up right now uh, that are recent of Ivor Reitman or of him and his son, you know, side by side talking about Ghostbusters and the legacy of Ghostbusters. And it's very endearing. You can tell that they have a very close relationship, a very great bond and that Ivan Reitman really loves his family. It does feel very meant to be if that's a thing. In watching so many interviews of them together, there was a time when Ivan Reitman talked about uh, when he and Jason kind of, it wasn't a fight, but when they realized, okay, we have to actually treat each other like adults and professionals, not father and son. And they had a really like come to Jesus moment and kind of not had it out, but really sat down and listened to each other as people and like had an emotional like breakthrough and they felt like we needed this to happen. We needed this time for dad to be overbearing and son to be like, hey, I'm a professional. You don't have to talk to me like that. And ever since then, they really like got on so well. So watching all of these interviews that they did for Afterlife, you can tell that they, that the bond that they have, that there is something that goes a little bit deeper and it's not just nepotism that Jason Reitman is successful because of his dad. It really is because he's talented. He grew up in this family and certainly learned from his father. Just by the sheer fact that you grow up on movie sets of some of the, you know, the like classic movies, you're going to learn a thing or two more than someone who doesn't do anything for the first 20 years of their life and then goes to film (laughs) school and starts learning. 
Well, at least personally to me, it's a shame that sometimes I don't realize what a career uh, filmmakers that I love have until after they've passed away. And I'm glad that we did this episode. It's like Ivan Reitman, 50-year career of, you know, either producing or directing or writing or collaborating or, you know, coming up with ideas. It's easy to think of him only as the guy who was responsible for Ghostbusters, but he did so much more, um, has given us so many great movies, uh, so many laughs, um, so many heartfelt moments. And from what I can tell personally from interviews that I've been watching and stories that people have been talking about Reitman, it's really hard to find anybody say a bad thing about the guy. You only hear good things. You only hear about how much he cared about people, how much he enjoyed collaborating, how much he cared about actors and cared about making people laugh. It's such a refreshing thing because, you know, especially in the last 10 years, I mean, so many stories come out of Hollywood about directors who are, you know, been abusive to the actors or like you found out they were a tyrant on set. And you just don't hear any of these stories about Reitman. You, you see it in his movies. You see what a compassionate and caring and thoughtful person he is. So again, I'm just so happy that we did this episode. It's been really nice these last few weeks to just watch all of these movies that, that Reitman has put out. Thank you, Ivan, for making so many people laugh and giving us so many moments of joy in cinema. In doing research for this episode, we listened and watched so many interviews with Ivan. And I think when you spend a lot of time listening to the same person's voice and hearing the stories and, and it's someone that they've passed away and thinking about their body of work that they left behind was something that was filled with such warmth and heart. I mean, even Animal House, you know, comes down to it like there's a real heart behind that movie. But when you throw in the comedy, the thing that makes the audience feel entertained and leaves you feeling good at the end of the movie. When mostly all of your films have that through line, you can't help but think that's what was going on within Ivan, that he was just such a nice guy, earnest, and um, I'm pleased to say that his movies you know, had an impact on me at an early age and still do today. And, and to think that it came from a little Jewish kid who who fled a communist occupation with his family and ended up being one of the most successful directors ever. And just thinking that his mission in, in movie making was to make people happy, was to was to entertain. I can't help but really feel um, this loss, really. I'm right there with you, Lindsay. Well, just want to say thank you again to Reitman for so many great years of laughter. And thank you for listening to our episode. Yes. Thank you, Ivan. And thank you, guys. I don't think I'll change my style a lot as much as I'll make different kinds of films. But I think there'll be something in all those films that is mine, you know, that comes from whatever it is that I do. I like comedy. I think I'll always do comedy, even when I make people cry. Those films will have, and I will do those films, but I, those films will have comedy in them because it seems to be the way I see the world.